Welcome to the latest episode of Stars, Cells, and God. This is the podcast where we explore the discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science and looking at how those discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, God's character, and the reliability of the creation accounts found in Scripture. Uh, my name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist. I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the organization that sponsors this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe 1, and subscribe, and there you'll be able to get access to all kinds of great content dealing with science faith questions, including star cells and God. So remember to set the notification uh, so that you are reminded when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. So I'm joined in studio today with uh, Dr. Christina Cerucci. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Chris is uh, a visiting scholar here at Reasons to Believe, and she is uh, a medical doctor. Her expertise, specialization is in uh, gynecology and obstetrics. Mm -hmm. So um, welcome. Uh, and you're going to talk to us a little bit today about abortion pill reversals. And if we have time, I'm going to talk a little bit about the obstetrics dilemma and how we can see evidence for a creator's fingerprint in the design of the human birthing process. So that's the, the, the game plan. Chris, I'll have you go first, but maybe before you uh, get into your d discovery, uh, just introduce yourself uh, so that those people who may not be familiar with you watching the show will, will know a little bit about you. Well, thanks so much, Fuzz. It's great to be here. So as you said, I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist. I went to, uh, got my medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia and did my residency at the Medical College of Virginia in OBGYN. And I've worked 20 years in that field in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm very happy to be here today. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for, for being here with us. Yeah. So I will be talking today about abortion pill reversal and some controversies surrounding it. So first, um, just a brief overview. Um, Abortion pill or chemical abortion is, is basically two medicines, the first an anti-progesterone and the second given one to two days later uh, to induce labor. And sometimes after taking that first pill, women regret their choice and they're distraught and what can they do? Is there anything they can do? So that's what we're going to talk about today, abortion pill reversal. So how long is it between then the, the, the two medications? 24 to 48 hours. Okay, that's the, the time set that separates yes. it. So what does the first pill do then? Yes. Um, actually, if you want to go to that next slide there. Oh, we're here. So there's two pills. The first one, mifepristone, also called mifeprex or RU486, is an anti-progesterone. Now, progesterone is very important in pregnancy. Progesterone maintains the endometrium. It allows for the vasculature and the flow of nutrients. So um, in early pregnancy, um, progesterone is re actually produced by the uh, ovary, by the corpus luteum, it's called in the ovary. And how mifepristone works is it um, blocks the progesterone receptors in the uterus, and it also blocks progesterone production, and this causes fetal death. And then, as I said, 24 to 48 hours is the second medicine called misoprostol or Cytotec. And that is basically induces labor. Okay. Uh -huh. So, again, these are given one to two days apart. So um, if the woman takes that first medicine and she has changed her mind, since the, the, the theory is or the thought is that since this is an anti-progesterone, is it possible to overcome that with high-dose progesterone? And that is what abortion pill reversal is. It's, it's giving um, high-dose progesterone. Um, is it common that women change their mind? Well, I don't think – it certainly happens. I don't okay. think we know how often. Um, okay. There are 
and I'm going to go into the criticisms on abortion pill reversal. And one of those criticisms is, oh, is, is there even a need for this? But there are certainly women who change their minds, and um, there's been hundreds of babies who have been saved by this process. Okay. So, okay. yes. So, yes, and if you look at this site, abortionpillreversal.com, is um, there's a whole network of abortion pill reversal providers. So these are physicians who have been trained in this. And um, so if a woman, after taking the first medicine, regrets her abortion, she can call this number 24-7, talk to somebody, get some more information. And if she wants to proceed, then they would connect her with a typically a local provider who, healthcare provider who prescribes the, the medicine and would, would take care of her. So I just wanted to um, put that out there. So we talked about progesterone's important in pregnancy. The first drug in chemical abortion is an anti-progesterone. So there's a biological plausibility that giving high-dose progesterone could mm -hmm. outcompete those progesterone receptors. There's also animal, an animal model. In um, 1989, Yanima B. et al. did a study in rats. So they had these pregnant rats. They gave them all progesterone. I'm sorry. They gave them all mifepristone. And then half, uh, half of them got, one group got um, progesterone and one group got placebo. Or, and the group that got progesterone, 100% of those I think they call them pups for rats, survived. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in the group that did not, who 33% uh, survived. So we mm. have an animal plausibility. We have biological plausibility. Maybe you can go two slides ahead here because um, – so uh, the chemical abortion was approved in this country in 2000. Okay. And uh, abortion pill reversal was first done in 2011. And this study here in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy was a case series. Now, it's just six women. So this isn't a mm -hmm. big trial. It's just a case series, small case series. And they found that four of six women who were given the progesterone carry their pregnancies to term. And so that started the abortion pill reversal network that uh, we talked about. So uh, we sometimes call it APR. So obviously we need a larger study, um, and you can go to that next slide there. This is the big study by George Delgado um, and others. So this was an observational case series. So women who took progesterone, I'm sorry, women who took mifepristone changed their mind, um, and they called the hotline, uh, and they were connected to a variety of providers, 325 different providers. Um, and they were given progesterone. Now, they were different doses and in, in, um, administration of progesterone. Um, so they had, um, they used a baseline survival rate of 25%. So mm. women who just take mifepristone and don't take the second medicine and do nothing, about 25% of those women will still carry their pregnancy. Okay. So that was kind of their baseline. And uh, what they found, they had over 1,600 calls to the hotline. They had se over 700 women who took the progesterone. Um, and they had 547 women who met the eligibility for the analysis. Um, and what they found is that um, their overall reversal rate was 48%. So again... If they do nothing, we're using a baseline of 25% pregnancies survive, and the overall was 48%. Now, this was a variety of mm -hmm. doses, and they found in the high-dose progesterone, either oral or intramuscular, the reversal rate was 64 to 68%. So um, now the farther along someone is, Gestationally, the higher the gestational age, the higher the success mm -hmm. of this uh, is. So this is kind of the initial landmark study. There's been a lot of criticisms mm -hmm. to this study and to abortion pill reversal but that I want to get into. Um, but, you know, as Delgado says, we know progesterone is safe in pregnancy. We have used 
progesterone in pregnancy for decades. We use mm-hmm. it in women with infertility in the first trimester. The American Society of Reproductive Medicine has said that progesterone is safe in pregnancy. So we're this isn't a rogue study given women some rogue drug. We use this drug all the time as, you know, I've used it all the time. Um, there are limitations to this study. It's a case series. It's mm-hmm. not a randomized controlled trial. And there's various doses of, of the mm-hmm. and um, means of administration of the progesterone. So there are some limitations here. Um, but it, it's validating the concept. Exactly. Right. Correct. It's validating the concept. Now, one of the criticisms is that, well, that's not a randomized controlled trial. Well, in women who wanted to keep their pregnancy, a randomized controlled trial would be unethical. Right. Giving either progesterone or placebo. Right. That would be unethical. So um, anyway, so in the conclusions of this study that the use of progesterone to reverse mifepristone appears to be safe and effective. And they, the two protocols, the one was intramuscular and one was oral, the high-dose progesterone that had the 64 to 68% success, they suggested those two protocols for mm-hmm. uh, giving uh, the progesterone. So again, yes. Is there any work done on the, the health of the of the of the infant or long term health effects of of doing the the reversal, right? Great question. So, their birth defect rate was the same as that rate in the general population. Okay. The other thing is that of these two medicines, mifepristone itself is not known to be teratogenic. So ah, okay. now the second medicine is there's significant teratogenic effects from misoprostol, but not from the first medicine. So again, if we can get in that window where a woman changes her mind before she's taken that second medicine. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's a great question. So you can go to the next slide there, um, and maybe the next slide. Okay. So we have the abortion pill reversal network. I mentioned there's a lot of criticism. So we're going to start with this one. Uh, This is by uh, Grossman and White in the New England Journal in 2018. It was an opinion piece criticizing Delgado's work. And they said, well, you can't compare those results with mifepristone alone. Um, They also criticized that they excluded those who had embryonic death, meaning if a woman had said, oh, I want this medicine, and then she has an ultrasound, and the baby has already died, they don't give the medicine. They've excluded those patients. Now, I don't see mm. that as a limitation. You, right. In real life, you wouldn't give that medicine if you know, the baby had already died. Another criticism, they say, well, you, Delgado excluded those lost to follow-up after 20 weeks. So a lot of the women, they followed them as, you know, uh, ideally through the birth of the baby. But there were some women that they knew at 20 weeks the baby was still alive and then the woman was lost to follow-up, so she had no further contact. And they assumed those pregnancies went on to term. Although that's a theoretical limitation, really, once a woman makes it to 20 weeks, it's quite unlikely she's not going to proceed to term. If, if this medicine's not going to work, it's not going to work early on. Mm-hmm. So, Right, um, right. That makes sense. Yeah. They also criticized that the safety data was minimal. Well, again, this is a medicine we use in pregnancy all the time. There are women with infertility, something called luteal phase defect. We give them progesterone throughout the first trimester because we know the pregnancy needs progesterone. If they're not producing enough, we give it. Um, women, other women with infertility receive progesterone. Um, they also said that the demand, the ma- demand for reversal is unclear. Well, there, I don't know what that number is, but there are women that change right. their mind. Well, I mean, if you had, what was, what was the number, 1,600 that called the hotline? Right. That's, you know... 
that's not an ins- inconsequential sure. number, right? Right. Now, it may be small in the total number of women getting abortions, but those are still, it's still a significant number of women. And remember, these are lives that we're saving. So this is important. Right. So, okay, they criticize, well, this, you know, it's not a randomized controlled trial. Well, now if you want to go to the next slide, this is very fascinating study by Mitch Crennan and, and others in 2020. Mm. They did a randomized controlled trial, and they were not supportive of AP, abortion pill reversal, and so they were trying to hey, let's get the truth. Well, as I said, a randomized controlled trial would be unethical in women who wanted to save their pregnancy. Well, Crennan did a study of women who were planning on abortion. So these were women planning on a surgical abortion, and he got their informed consent and delayed that surgical abortion for two weeks. Okay. And then he gave them all mifepristone, and then they either got placebo or progesterone. So really pretty interestingly designed study. Mm-hmm. And they concluded, they, they, they determined that they would need 40 patients to have the, the power to show something. Well, this study was stopped early after 12 patients because of safety concerns. So they had 12 patients. Two patients dropped out because of nausea and vomiting and bleeding and side effects. So we have 10 patients. So we don't... And um, five of those patients got mifepristone and progesterone, and five got mifepristone and placebo. Three of those 10 patients had heavy bleeding, had to call an ambulance, went to the emergency room. So they stopped the study, which is the right, you know, mm-hmm. right thing to do. You, you don't want to do harm to anyone. Um, and they said, and they concluded that, um, you know, this is, uh, it's unsafe to give mifepristone without misoprostol. Um, but interestingly, if you look at those three patients, the two that got progesterone or placebo, excuse me, one woman had, they both had very heavy bleeding and needed intervention. They both needed surgical intervention. One woman um, needed a transfusion. She, her blood pressure dropped, her mm-hmm. um, heart rate went up. The one woman in the progesterone group had heavy bleeding, went to the ER, but the bleeding stopped on its own in three hours. The other interesting finding, now this is only 10 patients, so we really can't draw any conclusions. It's not, there's right. not enough numbers for statistical significance. But four of the five patients, so 80% in the progesterone group, their baby still had a heartbeat. But only two of five, so 40% in the placebo group, had a heartbeat. Interesting. So... Crennan's conclusion was, well, you can't evaluate the safety of abortion pill reversal because of the safety concerns when not giving the second medicine. And he said that patients in early pregnancy who only take mifepristone, the first drug, could be at high risk of hemorrhage. And he said any, you know, abortion pill reversal experiment should be considered experimental and the case reports are inadequate. Now, George Delgado responded to this, you know, all these letters back and forth in the medical journals. And he said, well, no, this study makes it clear that giving mifepristone and doing nothing else is a a risk to the pregnant women. Remember, the woman receiving progesterone did better Mm -hmm. hemorrhage-wise than the women receiving placebo. And he also said, you know, although we don't have statistical significance, it's only 10 patients, these numbers are still um, consistent with the numbers he found. He found that 68, 64 to mm-hmm. 68% of women, their pregnancy were saved with progesterone. In Crennan's study, it was 80%, and then the 40% who didn't. So... So there was that study, and then we have more criticism. If you want to go to the next slide. So this is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who um, 
they are opposed to abortion pill reversal, and they put out this statement, medication abortion reversal is not supported by science. And they refer to Crennan's study in 2020 and said that this was ended, it was ended early due to safety concerns, which is true, but really the big safety problems were in the women who mm-hmm. didn't take progesterone and only took mifepristone. Um, they also say that legislative mandates are unethical, un- based on unethical, unproven science are dangerous to women's health because there are some states, I believe, that require what a woman's seeking an abortion that she be told about abortion pill reversal. So ACOG is opposed, but it's very interesting because in their statement, um, their practice guideline, practice bulletin on chemical abortion, they warn that women should not immediately take Depo-Provera, which is a progesterone contraceptive, right after the abortion because it may make it less effective because it's a progesterone. So it's just interesting how they they pose that. Hmm. So if you want to go to the next slide, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, um, their statement, which I will read, some women change their minds after starting the mifepristone abortion process and wish to reverse the effects of mifepristone to, t- to stop the medical abortion. The current research suggests that using progesterone to counter the effects of mifepristone and stop the abortion process is both safe and effective since there is no alternative treatment for women who change their minds it is reasonable to offer this life-saving and life-changing treatment to women who desire to increase the chances of pregnancy survival. I would agree with that. I personally think if a woman changes her mind, it's actually unethical not to offer her progesterone, not, not to make her aware of this option. Um, we're talking about the life of her baby. Um, and as we know from the hundreds Perhaps now it's thousands of women who have reversed their pregnancies. There are certainly are women who, who change their mind. So, um, you know, although the the science is only based on case reports, it's a pretty big case report case series. There and they're continuing mm. to do research. Um, but as I said, a, a, a randomized controlled trial in women who want to save their pregnancy wouldn't be ethical. So, and you can just show that next slide again, which we've showed before, but abortionpillreversal.com will provide more information. Yeah. Well, Chris, that's great. That's, that's a, that's pretty interesting. Uh, And it's uh, interesting to me to, to see uh, how these kind of questions, these scientific questions are worked out uh, among, you know, uh, clinicians, right, right, through these kinds of, of studies, um, is is this typical of, of how uh, people work through whether or not a particular medical medication is indeed safe and effective, or, or is this atypical? Well, I would say this is not being worked out in the medical literature because what you have, you know, there is in. Things related to abortion, there is such a disagreement based on which side you're on. And in my opinion, there is a lot of bias in what's published, and there's bias in how things are preventive. I've went through some of that in our mm-hmm. uh, last year on our chemical abortion. Right. Um, you know, you have to really look at these studies. So I don't, you know, basically drugs are approved by the FDA. And then, you know, we le- we all learn a lot by studying and, and literature and things like that. There has been a lot of um, concern with medic- chemical abortion. In fact, there's a lawsuit now with mifepristone saying it didn't go through the right processes mm. with the FDA, the normal process, the normal trials mm. to be approved. So... Um, yeah, it, it is, it is interesting to see the back and forth. Right. I, I don't, 
know that anybody's going to agree, but... Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned biases and you can easily see in some, in an, in a, when it comes to questions about abortion, how those biases could really play a significant sure. role in influencing not only the, the experimental design or the types of experiments that people do, but even the way you analyze the experiments. Sure. Are you giving, are you looking at the results in the best light or the worst possible light? Right. How, how would you respond to somebody that would say, well, uh, uh, people that hold to a pro-life position are actually also exercising a bias as they approach the science of this question, kind of turning it around a little bit? What, what would you say to somebody that, that levels that, that criticism? Sure. I would say we all have a bias. I think everybody has a bias. You know, we're all told as physicians, well, you need to be unbiased with your patient. Well, you do, but... We're all biased. We all have views. Um, I, I need to not push my views on someone, but that doesn't mean we don't. We all have a bias. Um, I think pro-abortion people have a bias. Many women feel that they're not given options and told, "Oh, you need to have an abortion." So we all we all have to, I think, guard against, recognize our bias, mm -hmm. and use it in appropriate way when we're dealing with patients. Well, and this is where clinical studies become very important, right? Because right. that's the whole point of science is right. we may all come to the table with a bias, but the, there's experimental work, theoretical work, clinical sure. work, right, that, that supposedly helps to guide us in the midst of, of our biases. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think recognizing your bias is important. I've told patients, well, these are your options. Now, I don't do this, you know, it's just being honest about, you know, op you, you need to offer the patients their options, but mm -hmm. and be aware of your own bias. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you see coming next in this, in this controversy? Do you think it's, it's the, the work is shut down and, and that the broader, you know, biomedical research community is saying this is settled, that abortion pill reversal is really not recommended, or do you th actually think there's more that's going to be coming? Oh, I think there. it's not shut down. Certainly, women are still receiving progesterone for abortion pill reversal. I think there will continue, like most things in the abortion debate, I think there will be continued to be work and attempts on both sides to um, promote their views. And um, but yeah, these statements that have been made, abortion pill reversal is still going on. In fact, um, there are continuing to do studies. I believe what's going on now is a um, George Delgado is still, you know, doing studies. I think they're going to look at maybe do a randomized trial of the different doses mm -hmm. and, and and means of progesterone. Yeah. So still giving the women progesterone, but but yeah, yeah. people are still still calling the hotline. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, you know, because it seems to me that the, the statement coming from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology was pretty definitive, right? This is unsafe. This is, this is unethical. I mean, it, it's, and it's based on, again, a, a, a study that really didn't even meet the, the standard of having the, the appropriate number of participants to right. draw statistically significant right. conclusions, and it had to be stopped, right? Right, Because the study design clearly right. w was, was, I wouldn't say flawed, but was problematic in terms of the health of the, the patients. That seems like a very definitive statement based on this study that is really unsatisfying in terms of right. what you walk away with, particularly in light of Delgado's earlier study. Right. So, you know, is that is that an example of where you see that that bias really coming through? Because it seems like it's an un, a, a scientifically unsubstantiated position to adopt. To Which me, is that that it's unsafe. Yes, I would agree with you. So, ACOG, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, in my opinion, they should be an unbiased organization. Um, unfortunately, they are very pro-abortion. They consider abortion health care, they promote abortion, and they promote that agenda. And um, so, yes, I have concerns about how they present things. And again, 
in their statement on chemical abortion, they say don't use progesterone because it may decrease the efficacy of the abortion. And again, we're not talking about some rogue drug that we're giving to women. You know, physicians use, quote unquote, off-label drugs all the time. This is a drug we've used in pregnancy for decades. This is a drug that pregnant women produce because they need it. This is a drug we have a lot of experience with. We know the side effects. So this is not, I, I put this in the category of, well, I would tell a woman, well, I can't guarantee that I can save your baby, but we have more, likely have more chance if we try the progesterone. And so, yes, I think there is a lot of bias. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is, this has been interesting yes. and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, a, a, an idea that I didn't even know was was an option right. for women. The idea of abortion right. pill reversal. So it's interesting because in uh, I did a few years ago published a paper with some colleagues on looking at the FDA adverse reported F adverse events from chemical abortion, and we actually pulled each report. We got them and looked at them and. Many doctors went through those and we categorized them. And there would be some that would be, they were reported because the woman still had a pregnancy. And sometimes the reason she had a pregnancy was because she changed her mind and didn't mm -hmm. take the second medicine. So even there we see, mm -hmm. now these women didn't get the progesterone, but, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I think it's important that women be aware of this right. option. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, Chris. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and shift gears a little bit, but we're still going to be dealing with the, the birthing process. And, Great. And, and be be warned, I'm a, a biochemist talking about uh, okay. the birthing process with a, a an OBGYN sitting across the <laughs> table. So, you know, I'm just asking you to be merciful oh, here. <laughs> you're too great. Yeah. But, you know, I, I um, you know, as we, we talk about the birthing process, you know, I, I think... I would think that no matter who you are, no matter your worldview, when you see a child being born, that, that it's 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 a, a marvel, right? A marvel Absolutely. to behold. If you know, I believe in miracles, but you know, I would venture to say that the birth of of a child is is miraculous. Truly, yes. Yeah, that it, it it's a miracle before you know uh, unfolding before our eyes, and it's also interesting to me that. Oftentimes, the birthing process is used by uh, people that are skeptics um, or people that take an evolutionary view of our origins mm -hmm. as human beings, whether they are skeptics or hold to a, a, a Christian perspective, adopting mm -hmm. a type of theistic evolution, that they actually see the human birthing process as, as evidence that, that human beings must be the product of an evolutionary history. Interesting. Because they... they in comparison to the great apes, uh, the human birthing process is rife with difficulties. That it's it's dangerous for the mother and the mm -hmm. child. Uh, that that um, uh, that there are complications. It's it's painful. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a difficult process. Uh, that oftentimes there's you know um, uh, uh, obstructed delivery. I'm not sure what the technical term. Right. Is there uh, that that people argue that this is not the type of birthing process that you would expect if indeed human beings are uh, the product of a creator's handiwork? That if we're the the crown of creation, if we are right. made in God's image and we are s s to be set apart from all other creatures, if really the universe and in the, the history of the earth, the history of life on earth is somehow focused on us, why would a creator? Uh, create human beings mm. with this profoundly difficult birthing process, and then, and then they, the the same uh, you know people that are advocating for an evolutionary perspective for human origins would say, well, this is exactly what you'd expect if humans are the product of an evolutionary history. I see. You know, and the idea would be that look, as evolution as most evolutionary biologists understand it is this unguided, undirected process, that there's no directionality to, uh, to mm -hmm. evolution, there's no prescribed end goal in mind, that, that it's a historically contingent process, 
you know, where it's a, predicated on a sequence of chance events where if you alter any one of those events, as Stephen Jay Gould said, mm. the outcome would be very different. So that if we could somehow magically reverse life's history and let evolution and you know transpire again that human beings likely wouldn't even have ever emerged wow. they were just a lucky happenstance but also the the nature of the process is that it's taking existing designs and co-opting them and modifying them to create new designs that that most evolutionary biologists would say that biological designs are not optimal mm. they they are not well designed they are flawed they are I- imperfections where if my imperfection is just a little bit less imperfect than yours, I'm going to survive, right? That's the, the way they view it. And so they would argue that, look, uh, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the human pelvis, it's not really designed, technically speaking, for our, 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 our anatomy is technically not designed for walking erect, right? That, that what you're looking at is a series of these evolutionary compromises where we, you know, we our bodies are inherently flawed because we evolved from a knuckle walking mm-hmm. quadruped mm. that, whose anatomy he was designed for moving around on all fours mm-hmm. or for arboreal locomotion, and so in order to uh, accommodate our capacity to walk erect, a number of aspects of our biology were altered, including the pelvis, which became more narrow. And as a consequence of that, the birth canal becomes more narrow. Mm-hmm. And then couple that with the trajectory that you see in, in hominin evolution where the, the, the brain size gets larger and, of course, the, the, the head is larger. Mm-hmm. And that those two features, the narrowing of the, of the pelvis, the, the shrinking of the birth canal to accommodate that, and our larger head creates you know, this, this obstructed delivery, the birth canal is twisted, you know, and so all of this, you know, the argument goes is, is something where it looks like evolution has taken a, a system really that evolved for uh, quadrupeds and has, for, has been forced to cobble together this imperfect birthing process to accommodate these other, fa- you know, facets of, of our evolutionary history. And so this is a a, a typical type of diagram that you would see where, you know, the top shows uh, a chimpanzee, you know, pelvis from a, a side view and from a, a kind of a, I'm not sure what that particular view would be head on. Mm-hmm. And you can see that, you know, a, a chimps, uh, the neonate of a chimps, uh, the head size, sorry, of a chimp neonate is small. It readily is accommodated by the birthing, by the birth canal. It's a very easy, non-complicated birthing process in chimps, presumably which are a proxy for, um, are a proxy for um, the, the ape-like creature that gave mm-hmm. rise to humans. And then below we see humans that are bipedal, and you see the changes that are forced in the pelvis mm-hmm. as a result of that. And you know, again, the large head size of the neonate. And so what ends up happening, this is referred to by evolutionary biologists as the obstetrics dilemma, where there are these two competing evolutionary forces, the large uh, brain size or the increased encephalization in humans and the, the, the bipedalism, which, again, constrains the size of the, of the birth canal. But then they argue that, that when you look at the gestational period for humans compared to other primates and you do what's called allometric scaling mm-hmm. – that our gestational period is actually shorter than you would predict. Oh. Uh, and, and the argument is, well, it has to be shorter because if you allow the fetus to develop inside the womb much longer, the head would become too large mm. and it would uh, be unable to be born, right? And even then, uh, when you, you're limiting the gestational period, the birthing process is so difficult that it requires assistance, mm. And so this is referred to as cooperative breeding by evolutionary biologists. And then you have this secondary altriciality in which much of the development for the human neonate is taking place outside the womb, which requires extended care, you know, which wouldn't necessarily be the case for, again, other primates. So, for example, the head size of the human neonate is about 28 to 30 percent of that of an adult, 
whereas for chimps, it's about 50%. Ah. And within a couple, a year or so, the chimp head brain development is completed outside the womb, whereas for humans, it's a right. much more protracted process, right? And so the argument is that this is, again, reflecting a compromise that is forced because of the nature of the evolutionary process and the flawed nature of, of the birthing process. So uh, are the evolutionists basically saying this is kind of a poor design? Yes, exactly. I see. Exactly, that it's a, a flawed design. And then, um, and there, but interestingly enough, the, the idea of the obstetrics dilemma among evolutionary biologists is controversial. Mm. There, there are some people that argue that that actually isn't a valid way to think about the birthing process. And instead, they argue that the shorter gestational period and the secondary altriciality that takes place isn't due to uh, this obstetrics dilemma, uh, but rather it's due to metabolic uh, demands Mm. on the mother, that that because the human head size is so large and the brain requires quite a bit of metabolic uh, load, that women give birth early to basically alleviate the fact that, or to, to respond to the fact that they couldn't provide the effective level of mm. nutrients to, for the fetus to survive. And so they argue that that's the, the evolutionary explanation for the nature of the human birthing process. But again, this is also arguing for a type of compromise. So uh, this is, in light of this background, this is a, a paper that I saw that I found to be uh, pretty interesting, published by a a team of researchers that really um, are from Europe. It's a large collaborative group. And they were trying to ask the question, is there actually evidence for the obstetrics dilemma? And if so, can we get a better insight into how the human birthing process evolved? So this is being done from an an evolutionary context. And so it's a very interesting approach that they take because they point out that, look, with chimps, you have, you know, a, a large, relatively large birth canal, and, the, and you're dealing with a, a knuckle-walking quadruped, and the infant, the neonate, has a relatively small head size. With humans, you have bi, a, a bipedal, uh, you know, hominin that uh, um, has a narrow uh, birth canal, relatively speaking, and the neonates have a very large head size. Well, Australopithecines, which are believed to be transitional intermediates documenting mm-hmm. the evolutionary origin of humanity, living somewhere between four to, to roughly two million years ago. There are some Australopithecines like Australopithecus sediba that was around <laughs> even as, as recently as 350,000 years ago. But uh, the, you know, these are intermediate, considered intermediate forms. They walked erect. Now, it's not clear if their bipedalism was facultative or whether it was obligatory similar Mm -hmm. to that of humans. That's a a debate. Uh, But the head size of the neonates presumably was going to be relatively small, more chimp-like. For an adult, the uh, brain size of a chimp is roughly 380 um, centimeters cubed, whereas for Australopithecines, sorry, the Australopithecines, it's about... 400 to 420 centimeters cubed. Okay. And so, you know, presumably you have a neonate with a relatively small head size. So it's kind of an intermediate step that allows you to, you know, characterize the obstetrics dilemma a little bit further. So the Australopithecus, excuse me, the fetal head size is larger than humans? Well, nobody knows what the fetal head size actually is. Okay. We don't have an infant, infant remains for Australopithecines. We do have um, well-preserved pelvises ah. for for Australopithecines. So what these researchers did is they they said, okay, well, we've got a we got some examples of pelvises, so we can get a sense for what the size of the birth canal mm. likely would be using that and, and modeling it and including soft tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but we don't know what the head size is, and so. There's been a number of studies where people have tried to estimate the head size of the Australopithecine neonate. And so one study said, well, if their development is like humans, where it's 28% at the size of birth, Mm that would be a brain or a head about 110 grams. I see. If uh, if we do an allometric study where we're looking at 
a, a, a number of primates, including humans. The estimates are maybe about 145 grams. Another study looking at non-human primates estimated it to be maybe 180 grams. So they, in the study, they took all three possibilities uh-huh. and they developed this uh, computer three-dimensional computer simulation looking at the birthing process. Wow. They didn't include um, they didn't include um, uh, the the twist a twisted birth mm-hmm. canal. They just assumed it was a mm-hmm. a straight birth canal, and they discovered that. Uh, the the uh, the australopithecine could not give birth to a neonate with a head size of 145 grams or 180 grams. It would only be about 110 grams, which again is what you get if you assume it's like that the neonate is like that of a human uh-huh. neonate. And so they argue, well, uh, it looks like the obstetrics dilemma is real, that it, it's driven primarily by bipedalism not so much by the large head size. Um, And they argue that likely you're dealing with a cooperative breeding where there had to be assistance to give birth Mm. and probably a secondary altriciality of sorts where that infant had to be cared for Mm. outside the womb. Now, this is this is speculation, sure. of, you know, squared. To, to be frank, I mean, it's a very nice study. I'm very impressed with the work, and you know, you're looking through the glass dimly, you know, because you're constrained by what's available to you in the in the fossil record. These are simulation studies where sure. they're making assumptions about brain size. So all that in 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 mind, it, it is a really interesting study that seems to suggest that there is validity to the obstetrics dilemma. And again, from an evolutionary perspective, it's interesting that you, 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 you already have uh, these hominins being born really almost like an anticipation of eventually the large brain size mm-hmm. developing, that, that there was no constraint on the, the evolution of, of the large brain size. So anyway, interesting study that, that's, that gives us a, a, an excuse to talk about the obstetrics dilemma. Because that's that, that's the whole point here. Interesting study worth talking about. But, you know, while many people look at this, again, through the lens of, of an evolutionary perspective, uh, where, again, this idea of the obstetrics dilemma is highlighting, quote, unquote, the, the flawed design of the human birthing process, as someone who holds to a creation model perspective, mm-hmm. where I see design Right in in nature, including in the human anatomy and physiology, um, you know how would I respond to this this particular claim? Right? How how do we respond to this particular claim? And um, you know the 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 point that I would make is that number one, there the obstetrics dilemma is highlighting trade offs, but trade offs are not necessarily a reflection of a flawed design. Sure. Right. right. I mean, you, you have a, a background in engineering. You, right. you work. You were trained as an engineer. Worked as an engineer. You know, and I'm I'm not an engineer, but it's pretty much elementary that if you're dealing with a complex system that has competing objectives, where those objectives are actually in conflict with each other, that the only way you're going to get an o- overall optimal design is to intentionally suboptimize you know, facets of that mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And that suboptimization needs to be done carefully right. in order to have an overall optimal system. So trade-offs don't necessarily reflect a flawed design. That, that I think, is the first uh, kink in the, in the reasoning, you know, uh, that evolutionary biologists are using. Uh, and, and so when you think about it, the fact that humans, again, are able to walk erect and that we you know, also have very large brain sizes, which in part is the reason why we, you know, are exceptional as human beings, that, um, that, it may, that this obstetrics dilemma, again, reflects this elegant trade-off, right? And even if you couple in this idea of metabolic constraints on the developmental process, mm-hmm. the idea that, again, the gestational period would be shortened not only allows for a birth of a large brain infant to take place, but it also minimizes again the 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 health or that 
the threat to the health of the mother and the child because of the increased metabolic demands, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of of having, you know, a very large brain child in the womb. So, so to me, I, I see this as actually, again, an elegant design that it doesn't undermine the the beauty of the of the birthing process, but rather, you know, or the well, or the design of the birthing process, but rather, again, it reflects, I think, you know, trade offs. Now, I've interacted with skeptics who will say, well, but couldn't God just simply have designed right. human birthing to be completely different? Right. You're right, so that you don't have any of these trade-offs. Well, the fact of the matter is no matter what the design is, there's always going to be trade-offs. Right. Trade-offs are inescapable. It may not be these two, two trade-offs, but it will be other trade-offs. Uh, but why would God you know, use the same design that we see in humans as in great apes if, again, there are these trade-offs that emerge? Well, to me, I think this is really a theological question that when we begin to think it through, I think really leads to a pretty profound insight about about God's goodness Mm -hmm. and God's provision for us. Because think about this. If if God would have designed human anatomy to be completely different than the anatomy of of every other creature, then the only way we could ever understand anything about human biology is to study human beings. Right. And, you know, you're talking about the ethical complications right. in trying to study human biology, right? Right. It, and, and so the idea that we can actually use lab animals as a proxy for human beings is really pretty profound when you think about it. Sure. And it's because we have shared designs that, that, that not only is our anatomy and physiology shared with other creatures, but so is our cell biology so is our biochemistry. And so it's remarkable to me as a biochemist that we can study the biochemistry of a yeast yes. yeast cell and then from that understand mm. you know, the, bio, the, the biochemistry of a human cell, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's, that's absolutely profound when we think about, you think about that. Uh, and so in other words, you could argue that the, the shared designs that, that a creator uses is, is making – biology possible as a sure. scientific discipline. It, it makes the living realm intelligible to us. It makes it tractable to us. Uh, it allows us to, to develop an understanding that then can not only benefit us as human beings, but really benefit really all life on earth that we have stewardship over as, as people made in God's image. And, and so interestingly enough, many people see homologies or these shared designs as, again, Evidence for 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 evolution, right? right. The, the shared anatomy between humans and in the great apes is, you know, understood as being evidence for uh, common ancestry. But prior to Darwin, biologists saw these homologies as well, but they interpreted them as archetypical designs mm. that existed in the mind of a creator, and that people like Sir Richard Owen marveled that the archetype for the vertebrate is so versatile that it can, that you can modify it and create a wide range of functional mm-hmm. you know a functional uh, biological systems so it's remarkable to think that the the design of the of the human of the 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 pelvis the primate pelvis let's just restrict ourselves to the primate pel- pelvis the design of the primate pelvis is so robust that it can accommodate Creatures that are knuckle walking quadrupeds right. and creatures that walk erect. Right. Right. That's that's pretty remarkable. And that that they're still it, the the birthing process is still possible uh, through uh, managing the trade offs of that of those designs. Um, and and so, and and in fact, the only reason this study was possible to to get any insight into the birthing process of of the Australopithecines is because of that share, those shared designs. Right. So this study wouldn't even be possible mm. if a skeptic was granted his or her wish that God would create human beings with a completely different biology. So not only do we see, again, the possibility of seeing the obstetrics dilemma through, you know, kind of a creation model design perspective with integrity, mm. 
But when we begin to ask these deeper theological questions, we really begin to see that God must have wanted us to have the capacity to truly understand the biological realm. And it's through that understanding that that we can have medicine, that we have the, the, the prospects of, of uh, developing, again, an understanding of the biological realm that we can take advantage of. So anyway. Interesting. Uh, so you see the obstetrics dilemma. You, you agree with the baseline findings, but you draw a different conclusion. Right. Really. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, I will comment that you mentioned that um, the gestational period was shortened, and I could just tell you as an obstetrician who's taking care of thousands of women, if I told them their gestation <laughs> had to be longer than 40 weeks, that much longer they wouldn't be too happy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I can understand that. Yes. You know, uh, you know, watching what my, my wife went through sure. with, her, with her pregnancies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, now, you know, I think when we were chatting about this earlier, you know, you, you were making the comment that I, I see this as, as design. Right. And, and you were bringing up this idea of, um, of, the, of the curse, right? Right. So tell me what you're thinking. Well, if you re- look at Genesis, and it's very interesting because when man sinned, you know, there was a curse that resulted. And for the man, I believe it was toil in the labor. And for the woman, it was pain in childbirth. And there was certainly a lot of pain in childbirth. And so you have to wonder, I'm not a theologian, but theologically, like what was childbirth or was there childbirth before the fall? I don't think so, but uh, in humans. So what would that have been like? You know, would there have been Maybe there would, I, I would imagine there was not any obstructed labor. So, but how does that all, these are things beyond my right. figuring out, obviously. Right. Well, I mean, it, it is interesting, you know, in light of the obstetrics dilemma, that when you are comparing the human birthing process to, let's say, that in chimps, that, that it is difficult, that it is painful. Right. You know, and and again, this is something that, that that scripture right is is making reference to sure right so that there is increased pain and you wonder could that increased pain not be and i'm just speculating here so sure. and, and and neither of us are theologians so we're we're going down a dangerous path but hey <laughs> why not uh, you know that that could it be that that increased pain in childbirth is not in reference to what it was like would have been like for humans prior to the fall, but rather it would have been what Adam and Eve observed with respect to other creatures that they were wow. learning about in the garden. That's right? interesting. So, so it, it is a comparison, right? Right. Increased pain in childbirth. Right. You know, but is, is it, again, what is that comparison? What is that comparison right. to? So. Interesting. Yeah, I never, I don't know, never delivered a chimp or an ape, so I don't really know much about the birth process, but it's interesting to learn that it's easier uh, than in humans. But I will say just from a philosophical like standpoint, having delivered thousands of babies, you mentioned this earlier. I mean, every time it's like, wow, there just has to be a God. Yeah. And and it's not just the birth process, but the whole pregnancy, like mm-hmm. how everything, um, how the uterus, that it can carry a baby. And right. there's a lot of amazing things that uh, I'm being kind of unscientific, but it's just the right. sense I get as I have, uh, don't ever get tired of seeing the birth yeah. of a human. How, what is the frequency of obstructed deliveries? I mean, is it? You know, is are people that are skeptics over over exaggerating the the difficulty of the birthing process, or is is it a fair assessment? No, it's pretty common. I mean, it's I don't know the number. You know, C sections in this country probably twenty to thirty percent, but uh, not all of those for obstructed labor. So, yeah, it's it's probably mm. I'm going to throw out a number that isn't accurate, but around ten percent or so. Okay, um, in that ballpark. 
um, yeah, that's why it's interesting because apes don't have the opportunity to have a C-section. So right. um, that's what we do. When the baby doesn't fit, you have to take it out another way. Right. Um, yeah. But interesting. Yeah. But no, it's a very real problem. Okay, well, I think we, we've uh, exhausted the topics for yes, the day. Thank you, Chris, for, for being with us and, and uh, enjoyed, enjoyed the conversation and enjoyed your insights. Um, so thank you so much for watching this episode of Star Cells in God. I would just remind you to go to our website, reasons.org, and check out all the resources we have dealing with a wide range of science-faith issues. Uh, follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. Go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One. Subscribe. Hit the notification button so you'll be notified when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. And just remember this, that the more we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe. Until next time.